welcome to the Point of Impact podcast with Rick McDaniel. Thanks for joining us today. Get ready to be inspired and motivated to live a high-impact life. Now, here's Rick. Welcome to the Point of Impact podcast. I'm Rick McDaniel. It's great to have you joining us again today. And we've got a special guest with us, Bishop Harry Jackson. He's the uh, senior pastor of Hope Christian Church in Beltsville, Maryland, which is a suburb of of, uh, Washington, D.C., and he is a leader in the black church. He's the founder and chairman of the High Impact Leadership Coalition. And he is somebody that has written uh, on the, the black church and has been interviewed on all kinds of media and somebody that is very much a, a leader who can speak to what is happening in our country. He actually had the vice president at his church for a listening session just a couple weeks back on racism and the police and all these sorts of things. And he is someone that is a friend of mine that I've known for a number of years, and I am excited to have him join us. He's, he's got a great background in terms of as a writer, as a pastor, uh, went to Williams College prestigious school in Massachusetts and also Harvard Business School. So he's got a lot of uh, a lot of education, a lot of intellect, and a lot of experience and definite insights about uh, the Christian response to racism and what is happening in our country today. And so we're excited to have uh, Bishop Harry Jackson with us today on the Point of Impact podcast. Well, welcome again today. And we have a special guest with us, and that is Bishop Harry Jackson, Senior Pastor, Hope Christian Church in Beltsville, Maryland. He also is uh, a leader in, in many other ways in, uh, in terms of uh, his role within the larger church and especially within the black church as a writer, as a speaker, as someone who commentates on various news shows, and someone that I've had the opportunity to get to know, and I'm excited to have Bishop Harry Jackson with us today on Point of Impact. Harry, welcome. Hey, Pastor Rick, it's good to be with you again, and I thank God for our long-term connection. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, when I was thinking about people that I could talk to about what is taking place in our country right now in terms of the racial unrest, the protest, and the raising of the issue of racism in America, and of course, uh, how does the church respond? You are one of the first people that I thought I would talk to. In fact, you and another Maryland, D.C. area pastor, John Jenkins, uh, probably know him over in Glen Arden. Um, yeah, very close. Yes, John. yes, good. So I thought if I could talk to a couple guys like this, this would really be helpful for my listeners and for all those who really care about what's going on and are saying, well, you know, what can we do and help us to understand better as, say, white Christians, well, help us to understand better and 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 especially as it as it applies to the church. You know, what can we do? And I want to begin by something that I actually don't know much about, uh, maybe some of these other things you and I have talked about before, but this idea of the reconciled church, can you tell me a little bit more about what that what that is and what you're doing? Yes, well, five years ago, January, I convened something called the Reconciled Church, <clears throat> and it was a black-white Hispanic movement, and uh, Bishop T.D. Jakes, along with James Robinson, uh, 
along with Sammy Rodriguez, Jim Garlow, um, Robert Morris. We all came together and we talked about the issues of race. Uh, we came up with seven bridges to peace that could be these bridges we would cross to heal the racial divide within the church. And we said reconciled church, and that's past tense, because Paul told us in Galatians 3 that there are neither male or female, Jew nor Greek, bond or free. Now, obviously, these distinctions were existence in culture, but in the body of Christ, these things were eclipsed by our connection to Christ. And so we came together. Bishop Jakes was very instrumental in getting denominational leaders from amazing black origin, uh, black community places. So we had about 200 leaders representing 40 million uh, believers. Wow. And Thursday night, we had 7,000 people gathered at the Potter's House on June 15th. We had communion, praise, worship, and preaching. And out of it came, Rick, the unifying bridge. Uh, we felt like Prayer was one of the bridges that could unify us. Okay. We talked about uh, education was a bridge. Secondly, we talked about uh, opportunities and jobs in urban areas. Four, we talked about marriage intervention, family reconstruction as a bridge. Five, we said that criminal justice reform was a bridge that can make a huge difference for us. And then we talked about reaching out to the poor, uh, trying to uh, make sure that there was an opportunity uh, to feed uh, people, to clothe people, etc. And... Um, the seventh and the last um, event, uh, we looked at some opportunities of us working together in specific agenda items that were local. So we came up with over a year and a half of different meetings, the fact that churches needed to bundle and connect together in small groups, and they needed to make sure that they worked uh, in concert together and that this was going to be an amazing way <clears throat> of coming into relationships. We also had dialogue sessions with, with those, with those um, that seven community uh, Seventh Bridge, where people talk together like they're doing right now okay. over this horrific um, murders. So we started that. 
And out of it came, believe it or not, the First Step Act to Criminal Justice Reform. Yes. At the meeting in January 15th, 2015, um, right on crime, a conservative group, the Texas uh, coalition that works in criminal justice came together <clears throat> along with Jake's uh, Tory program, Texas Offenders Reentry Initiative, Tory. Okay. And he's graduated 10, 12,000 people from that program to reentry back into regular life. Uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, and I'll stop going on and on, we gathered there the historic civil rights movement, about 107 pastors, along with the mayor, city council members, uh, people from all over the state, and we got grants for a youth city uh, outreach. They're still working on that, but youth city is a youth-oriented way of keeping kids off the street. And so that was the vision. First Step Act, um, I took that those concepts into Mr. Trump's presence pre-election uh, when he was running, as we sat with evangelicals, they wrote down all the traditional stuff, life, Jerusalem, religious freedom. But I had enough influence and enough had come to these early meetings that were in the room with me there we got on the list criminal justice reform. Yeah, that's great. And of course, you and I are both signatories of the Justice Declaration, which is another important step in that process. And the First Act, Step Act was actually made into law. And that is obviously a first step in, in the right direction. But since yep. then, other events have unfolded um, where not only are we concerned about how especially the the black community young men are dealt with in terms of their sentencing but now we are looking at the loss of life the continued loss of life and watching some of these videos that are just horrifying to see and every single time we see one we can't believe it and then even after George Floyd is murdered we see another one now has taken place in Atlanta. And so it just is creating such uh, an uproar as as it should. And so I, I want to talk with you just a little bit about what you think about not criminal justice reform right now, but what about uh, police reform? And where do you think Christian leaders and followers of Christ should should be uh, uh, sitting and thinking on? Well, let me go back and Rick, I can tweak and adjust the concept. I believe criminal justice reform has about five compartments. <clears throat> Under the compartment is the first step 
and that is police reform, meaning as soon as you get taken into custody by the police, what happens from there is a part of your entering criminal justice interaction and system. Okay. So from police, then you have um, being after that, being in custody, having representation in the courts. Many people don't get correct public offenders as to be very fast. Then from there, sentencing. There's disparate sentencing that happens. Yes. With many African Americans. After sentencing, the condition in many of the prisons are horrific. So you've got race-based gang systems. You might have to join one percenters or black Muslims in order to make sure you're able to be safe. Uh, Aryan race people may be in there if you're a young black guy. And you can get all kinds of crazy, torturous situation, gang rapes in prison, all kind of dehumanizing things. Then you deal with re-entry. Once you get out, how do you get back to life? So this whole continuum yes. is criminal justice. So back to policing. The policing problem, let's say in Prince George's County here in Maryland, from when I was a kid, I lived in a different state. I heard that many blacks disappeared. They were they were just killed in the custody of the Prince George's County State Police, County Police, and there was a whole history. This county was with the Confederacy in the Civil War. Most of Maryland was with the North. PG County was with the South. The South, wow, how about that? Yeah, how about that? So, so policing has been in certain communities, uh, generational. It has caused fear. Even my 37-year-old daughters and their uh, friends they aren't safe with police because of the stories, driving while back, black uh, people have been traumatized, abused. In this region alone, a lot of police have been um, corrupt. And most of the police, I think, are really good people but we've had corruption, abuse, all kinds of problems historically. So it's a cesspool. It's almost like two different, Pastor Rick, two different policemen show up in our community. One in the urban ghetto areas, and they are trying to get home every evening and get through. And then in the suburban areas, they've got a lot of resources and they're able to keep people safe. 
but they are different. Yeah. It's almost like they're friendly, warm, and protective in the high economic zip codes, and they become self-defensive and abusive in many of the low-income, low-zip code areas. And that all happens within the same county in Maryland that that takes place. You're saying both in the in that one county, large county, obviously, right outside uh, District of Columbia, that you have yep. both the higher-end economic areas and the more challenged economic areas, and the police really do act differently. So what... Uh, you know, we, we talk about, we certainly are talking about, and there's a discussion about uh, de-escalation uh, as opposed to escalating and uh, making sure that these policemen who are repeat offenders, frankly, uh, in their own dis, uh, disobedient ways against the law, that they are known and that they can be identified and, and they can't just uh, be allowed to be switched around almost like the Catholic Church used to do with the, the bad <laughs> priest, you know, the same sort of thing, just move them around. The unions obviously have a great degree of power and, and, and control over these things. Are you hopeful that there can be a police reform? I can. I love it. I think that the president made an amazing declaration um, on Monday, you have to remember that two weeks ago, Friday, uh, Vice President Pence had a listening session at our church. We had policemen, businessmen, community leaders, some members from our church. And then the week after that, Thursday, in Dallas, Texas, uh, he had another listening service, I should say, the president himself. Right. So I think he's on to it. But I believe back to the church again, we're going to have to take this thing locally, meaning there has to be federal police reforms and ways that you can bring accountability but then if you're coming back to PG County or Montgomery County in Washington, D.C., there's going to have to be local responsibility and local people who are going to vote their values on community policing. And that's going to take all of us all around the country. Remember Ferguson? When he went in and looked at everything, most of the black uh, consist, uh, constituencies weren't engaged in Ferguson. And all of them felt like they were badgered by and persecuted by people in the community. The national level media in many of our conservative communities we're saying, oh, it's only a handful of people, blah, 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 blah. Not many people are being hurt. Black folks, you're kind of oversensitive. But the global numbers are one thing. But there are bad cops in some bad communities. And there's got to be both federal and then local reform. So hopefully I'm showing this picture. So... 
the church coming together. Yes. Tell us, let's talk about that. What, you know, what can we do as Christian leaders? What can we do as followers of Christ in local churches? And for those who are listening who aren't even Christians, but are listening to this podcast because they're interested in hearing what, uh, you know, maybe is being done or being talked about in Christian circles, let, let's talk about that a little bit. What, what are some steps that can be taken? Well, I think we're going to have to vote and put in representatives who are city council members. Uh, down your way, friend of mine, a pastor, is running for Congress. And we need to get people like that in office. And then we need to tell them we have, I have a book that just written, you can pre-order it now, called A Manifesto, an American Christian uh, contract with minorities. Okay. A Manifesto. And the idea would be you've really got to come together with Christian values and say these things are important to us, such as education, and we're talking right now about police reform. Again, um, you really can't do much if you're not engaged. Um, so there need to be a few people. I don't think we need to defund the police. Okay. I think we need more police, more training, and then oversight, meaning... If you're a black, white, brown, and Asian Christian conglomerate or Christian group, we should be able to say, we're going to vote for some people. We're going to know they're in the right place. We're not voting for, I'm going to use the word socialism or anarchy. We're not just going to do away with the police. What a stupid thing. No police. I call 911. And who's coming to help me? <laughs> right. I, right. You know what I'm saying? Yes, yes of course. Um, that's crazy. On the other hand, if you are in a ghetto zip code and you're like Southeast Washington used to be years ago, there's certain times on Saturday night when they wouldn't come in anymore. Hmm. And they're going to come in. They're going to be more bullying. In some of those communities, those guys are saying, we'd rather handle it on our own than have to deal with bullying police. Okay. So I think we're going to take back our um, political systems and grassroots engagement and uh, get righteous people who have sense and prayer and coordination. We're going to have to be the light uh, that's set on the hill. Um, we're going to have to be really engage as spiritual watchmen. 
Yes. So as uh, as someone who's, you know, been involved in these discussions for a long time, you go back five years ago, the Reconciled Church, and certainly you can go back a lot farther in your involvement. What what do you just in a nutshell, what are you think about what's happening right now, this season we're in right now? Are you hopeful? Uh, are you uh, do you feel like this is a, a, a time that has come? Uh, are there things that concern you? Are there things you would like to see that aren't happening? Just give me uh, an overall uh, bird's eye view from someone who's got a lot of experience. Well, Pastor Rick, <coughs> I'm, I'm very hopeful. I hate to say it this way, but I'm going to say it real bluntly. What's just happened is that we have been wounded and some one has reached onto the wound and ripped off the Band-Aid. And so now we've got an exposed wound. We're bleeding, but, but you can't hide it anymore. It needs to be dressed. It may need some stitches. It may need to be attended to. So in a reverse kind of way, it's positive because we can't hide it. Yes, and the healing process can begin. The healing process can begin. But the church has got to engage and again, like I say, engage in your community. Uh, pray for national reform, but pray for places like your city, Pastor Rick Richmond, because they've got so much history. Yes. And uh, there's so much bitterness in the community. So. What's going to happen is if white, black, brown, and Asian come together, talk, interaction, they're going to vibe back and forth. But eventually, I think you'll get on the right page. We'll do that wound repair again. We're going to clean out the wound. We're going to put in some stitches. We're going to put on some dressings. And healing is going to begin, but we're going to have to really and truly uh, have this generation engaged. So pastors, leaders, church members, all of those are going to be important for us. Yes, but it's time though, right? Do you believe that this is, you know, a a time, a God-ordained time? Because you have meetings, you have discussions, but this has really brought it to a level of of intense introspection and uh, public awareness that we just haven't seen before. And if it's handled correctly, this really can be the beginning of, of a true, genuine healing and a unifying that's been needed for so long. Do you agree? Uh, yes, I believe. And what's good 
is that we saw whites marching with blacks. Yes. First time this numerous, although it was like that back in the 60s after King, uh, before and after King's assassination. So I think we're going to see this move forward. But I will say this, huge warning. But if the church does not engage <coughs> with guidelines and standards, sorry, let me cough here, <coughs> with guidelines and standards, with morality and nonviolence, we're going to tumble into darkness. Many of the young people are not discipled, they're not Christian, they're not focused, they're just angry. Right. And anger without some kind of moral focus will lead to unruly problems that we're not going to be able to handle. Yeah. So I think that's really where we are. I'm excited. I'm focused. And did your audience listen to the president on Monday, his speech from the Rose Garden. And if they didn't find it, maybe you can put it out on the web. It was the best event. President met with the families of all these people who had been murdered and uh, beat up under police custody, and he had a mixed race uh, policing um, leadership nationally, and they were able to get after all the talking systems and talking sessions, the things that needed to be kind of put into place, like the technical assistance, but then he stood up and he said that he was concerned and that he was fighting for peace and fighting for protection. He talked about the minority community. He spoke like a father Good. from the heart, and it was about the best from the heart declaration I've heard the president ever make. Great. Well, that's 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 encouraging, and it's and it is encouraging to for somebody like you to say you have hope and and you see this as a positive thing. And and we're just starting here. This is not like you know it's not over. It's just really beginning. But it begins with conversations like this. It begins with educating ourselves and understanding more. And so it's been great to have you, Bishop Harry Jackson, to give us some insights today. And we really appreciate you being with us today on the Point of Impact podcast. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Point of Impact podcast with Rick McDaniel. Thanks for tuning in and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode. 